From American Public Media and the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, this is an APM Reports documentary, Order 9066, The Roundup. President Roosevelt said in a statement today that the Japanese have attacked the Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, from the air. At the start of World War II, the U.S. government rounded up more than 100,000 people of Japanese ancestry and forced them into prison camps. Two-thirds were American citizens. We were able to take whatever we could carry in our two hands. Our dog saw us leaving and followed us until he got worn out and he couldn't keep up. The government built 10 prison camps. Conditions were primitive. We separated our living quarters by putting up blankets. Coming up, Order 9066, The Roundup, from APM Reports. First, this news. It was a December Sunday like any other. Folks on the West Coast were at church, or at the movies, or visiting friends. Some were serving customers at the grocery store. Some were mopping up at the tavern. Sammy Kay's Sunday Serenade was on the radio. I was playing in the yard. I was playing Captain Marvel with a cape and so. And my brother, Tsuyoshi, came after me and said, we're going home. We're going home right now. I had just been at a party, and we were going home, and the radio announced it. We just couldn't believe it. I remember that very, very clearly. I turned the radio on, and oh, my God. President Roosevelt said in a statement today that the Japanese have attacked the Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, from the air. I'll repeat that. President Roosevelt On uh, December 7th, we were out in the field working. And my sister come out and she said, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. I immediately thought, well, it had to happen. It just shattered me, you know, I just didn't know what to think. I didn't hear about it until I got home and my father was listening to the radio and he just said, well, they bombed Pearl Harbor. He says, I don't know where it is. And all I could think of was, well, how would my friends treat me at school? I asked dad, what's going to happen to us? And you know what he said? the government will take care of us. I'm going to cry. The government will take care of us. Evacuation. More than 100,000 men, women, and children, all of Japanese ancestry, removed from their homes in the Pacific Coast state. We were able to take whatever we could carry in our two hands. We had no choice. One suitcase apiece. Dad went to town and bought eight suitcases. One suitcase for the rest of your life that we thought isn't a lot. And that's the way we traveled, and with a tag on the suitcase and a tag on our body. We knew that there was a connection between what happened and us, simply because we were Japanese. But we had no idea the extent of the damage that would be done to us as a community. From American Public Media and the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, this is Order 9066, a three-part documentary series about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. This is part one, The Roundup. Saab Shimono grew up in Sacramento, California. He was sent to a camp along with his family in 1942. He narrates our story. 75 years ago, some 120,000 Japanese Americans were living in prison camps built by the government of the United States. Like me, two-thirds were American citizens. As America went to war, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066. It authorized the forced removal of people of Japanese ancestry living in California, Oregon, Washington, and Arizona. Why? In part because U.S. security officials feared that Japan would invade America's Pacific coast. That's where most Americans of Japanese ancestry lived. In the months leading up to the war, military officials, major newspapers, and West Coast politicians warned that these people of Japanese ancestry would rise up to fight for Japan. 
right here in our own city are those who may spring to action at an appointed time in accordance with a prearranged plan. This is what Los Angeles Mayor Fletcher Boron said on the radio after Pearl Harbor. His words are read by an actor. Each of our little Japanese friends will know his part in the event of any attempted invasion or air raid. We cannot run the risk of another Pearl Harbor episode in California. Authorities warned that Japanese-American saboteurs would blow up dams and bridges. They would signal enemy ships and planes. They would poison the food supply. Of course, none of this ever happened. The anti-Japanese prejudice that roiled the West Coast in the 1940s had been building for decades. Chinese immigrants started arriving in the 1840s. They were attracted to the gold rush. Historian Alice Yang has written extensively on Asian American history. They work building the railroads, and then you get the development of an anti-Chinese campaign including a lot of labor activists who argued that the Chinese laborers were taking jobs from white workers. Chinese immigrants are banned in 1882, and as a result, the labor recruiters search for a replacement. So they turned to the Japanese immigrants. Which worked for a time. Historian Greg Robinson is an authority on Order 9066. He says pretty soon the anti-Chinese bigotry expanded to include the Japanese. White farmers and commercial groups resented Japanese competition. The Japanese were excellent farmers. They worked hard. The, the whole families worked, so they were able to make very unproductive land very productive. And they succeeded. And this challenged white supremacy, and it challenged the uh, automatic assumption of white Californians that they should uh, be on top. Many Japanese immigrants were non-Christians. Whites denounced them for supposedly being degenerate and immoral, flatly unable to adopt virtuous American ways. Newspapers along the coast brimmed with anti-Japanese venom. The Japanese are worse than the Chinese. For while the Chinese takes up work a white man will not do, the Japanese enters into active competition and drives the white man out. Our duty is to preserve America for the Americans and the white races whom we can assimilate and whose children will have the American way of life. In 1924, Congress passed a law excluding all Asian immigrants, including the Japanese, from becoming citizens. Historian Alice Yang. They also weren't allowed to own land in their own name. It's called the Alien Land Acts. Throughout the West Coast, the anti-Japanese forces argued that to try to prevent immigrants from settling in the U.S. and to make it clear that they were not welcome, you would not allow them to own land. A lot of Japanese immigrants got around this by putting the deeds to their property in the names of their children. Under the Constitution, children born in the U.S. are American citizens. The Alien Land Acts were just one of many barriers built by the whites to keep the Japanese separate and unequal. World War II began in 1939. There was strong sentiment in the U.S. to stay out of the conflict. Still, American military and law enforcement officials planned for that possibility. They suspected that Japan might attack the U.S. They also suspected that many Japanese immigrants and their families would be loyal to Japan. So, FBI surveillance teams created lists of leaders in the Japanese community on the Pacific coast. Within hours of the attack at Pearl Harbor, the roundup of innocent Japanese aliens began. Ray Takakawa's family owned a strawberry farm in Bellevue, Washington. Ray's mom was a U.S. citizen. Her dad was not. Ray was 14 at that time. And my dad was working outside. He was covering up this Japanese plant. It's called Udo. I remember that. And I went running out to tell him. He wasn't overly surprised. The surprise came later that night. Ray woke up to the sounds of a commotion. FBI agents were in the living room. My mother went on a rampage. I mean, she didn't care if they were FBI men or not. And she was 
proclaiming to them that she was an American citizen and she had the rights of an American citizen and how dare they come breaking into my house. And Oh, yes, I, I heard her, but that didn't matter to them. The FBI took her father away. We kept thinking he was coming home any day, you know. Oh, they couldn't keep him. We just assumed that he would be home any time now. Well, the days stretched into weeks. And the weeks became months. In Seattle's Japantown, a six-year-old girl named Mei Sasaki lived in an apartment above her family's grocery store. Both of May's parents were Japanese nationals. After December 7th, the FBI suddenly came for her father. There were these two big guys that came and were talking to my dad about this. And then my mother told me, she whispered in my ear in Japanese, to run over there and grab hold of Papa and start crying. And then she told my two brothers to go there and just look very sad. May's father was prominent in the local Kenjinkai. It was a mutual aid association made up of local Japanese people who helped each other out in times of misfortune. It was also a kind of social club. So the people that were rounded up right after the attack on Pearl Harbor were mostly immigrant leaders of the Japanese-American community. Historian Alice Yang says the FBI used a wide net to arrest Japanese nationals and ransack Japanese homes. Some of these people were prosperous businessmen. Um, some of them were wealthy farmers. Some of them were the heads of the Japanese Association, which was an immigrant community organization. Some were the heads of cultural organizations. So if you were the head of a Japanese poetry organization, that activity could cause you to be put on the surveillance list and therefore rounded up by the FBI. Frank Fuji was a Seattle teenager at the time of the war. His family owned a popular tavern. Well, Dad, when I, every Sunday as a ritual, you know, I work with him at the tavern to clean it up and mop the floor or mop the bar, and then he lets me play the pinball machine, and it was a ritual of companionship. On Sunday, December 7th, there was a knock at the Fuji family's door. One hour after Pearl Harbor, I was very, you know, this innocent kid that opens the door, and this is one hour after Pearl Harbor now, and here uh, two big white gentlemen will say, well, the FBI, uh, where's Mr. Jimmy Rice at Kufuji? And I said, oh, Dad's here somewhere, and I uh, get him, and, and then they took him. And I thought, I didn't see him after that for three and a half years, and to me, that was devastating. Lawson Sakai was 18 years old when his uncle was picked up by the FBI. They were living in farm country near Los Angeles. Lawson remembers the panic that spread through the Japanese community as the FBI searched people's homes, looking for evidence that they were sympathetic to Japan. So a lot of the people that they found out that the FBI was going into their homes, they started burning and destroying everything. My parents destroyed everything they had, that, any relation to Japan. So there's no photos, no record of where they came from. It's all gone. Lawson's parents were hardly alone. Thousands of Japanese immigrants from Los Angeles to Seattle did the same thing. I remember the light of the afternoon and everything. This is Pat Suzuki. She grew up on a farm in central California and was 12 years old when the FBI raids started. It was getting dark, and my mother had a little fire that she had going, and she was tearing up family pictures uh, of people in Japan and her younger brother, just anything that might have implicated our connection with Japan. It was pure terror. 17-year-old Aiko Herzig Yoshinaga lived with her family in Los Angeles. My father destroyed all of his Japanese language books because rumors spread that well, if the FBI came to your home and found Japanese language books, your father or uncle who or mother would be taken away. And fear just gripped the community over things like that. 
The Japanese detained by the FBI was shipped to prison camps in Montana, North Dakota, New Mexico, and Texas. They were detained with German and Italian nationals swept up mostly on the East Coast and in the Midwest. They were never charged and had no access to lawyers. Law professor Eric Moller says it was perfectly legal. Because the, the law since the late 18th century has permitted the arrest and detention of so-called enemy aliens. That is to say, citizens of countries with whom the United States is in a declared war. So there were efforts made by both the Office of Naval Intelligence and also the FBI to kind of surveil the Japanese communities of the West Coast and develop lists of individuals who might cause trouble in the event of a war. Some of the Japanese aliens would be reunited with their families during the mass incarceration to come. Others would be gone for years. And it bears repeating, historians have yet to find evidence of a single conviction of a Japanese-American accused of sabotage or espionage in World War II. At the start of 1942, West Coast politicians began demanding that the federal government take drastic action against Japanese Americans in the region. They were joined by anti-immigrant groups, business associations, and many voices in the media. Hearst newspaper columnist Henry McLemore wrote, The only Japanese apprehended have been the ones the FBI actually had something on. The rest of them, so help me, are free as birds. I am for immediate removal of every Japanese on the West Coast to a point deep in the interior. I don't mean a nice part of the interior, either. Let him be pinched, hurt, hungry, and dead up against it. Proponents of mass exclusion had the ear of FDR's War Department, including the Army Commander in California, Lieutenant General John DeWitt. DeWitt claimed that all Japanese Americans were potential traitors, and he warned his superiors that farmers or fishermen on the Pacific coast could be signaling Japan. FBI investigations and Roosevelt's own intelligence sources showed that these claims were false. But that very finding led to a rather odd conclusion. The fact that there was no actual sabotage or espionage by Japanese Americans was clear evidence of how dangerous and untrustworthy they were. This is historian Alice Yang. Because in this twisted reasoning, Japanese Americans are so treacherous and dangerous. They are willing to withhold their espionage and sabotage to lull Americans into a false sense of security so that then they could have a concentrated attack. Walter Lippmann, one of the nation's most respected journalists, took up this idea. He warned in February that the Pacific coast was in imminent danger. In a column published nationwide, Lippmann questioned what was owed Japanese Americans during war. There is the assumption that if the rights of a citizen are abridged anywhere, they have been abridged everywhere. Nobody's constitutional rights include the right to reside and do business on a battlefield. Al Yang says the widespread mistrust of Japanese Americans reflected long-held beliefs that they were inherently different from Americans and unable to assimilate. This idea was at the heart of a report DeWitt wrote justifying the mass removal of Japanese Americans from the Pacific coast. He actually states that even though later generations of Japanese Americans and citizens are, and I quote, Americanized, he also stated that the racial strains are undiluted meaning that regardless of what kind of behavior they'd had, their education, you know, people who had served in the military, for example, racially, because those racial strains are undiluted, they could never be trusted. Historian Greg Robinson says these notions were hardly foreign to President Roosevelt. Roosevelt supported laws limiting the ability of Japanese people to settle in the U.S., to become citizens, or to own agricultural land. 
To FDR, these laws were good. Because they protected white racial purity against intermarriage and protected uh, the population against this unassimilable Japanese presence. Robinson says that Roosevelt didn't actually hate the Japanese, but he harbored a common prejudice. He had a certain feeling that Japanese were in some undefinable but nonetheless important way not really American. People clamoring for the forced eviction of Japanese Americans from the West Coast said it would be impossible to determine who would be loyal to the U.S. and who wouldn't. Therefore, the thinking went all people of Japanese ancestry needed to be cleared from the West Coast, both aliens and citizens. Not everyone supported mass removal, including President Roosevelt's own attorney general, Francis Biddle, and his FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover. They all said, we've got the situation in hand. Legal historian Eric Muller. We arrested these couple of thousand. We can handle this by individual arrests. We can handle this by increased powers of search and seizure. We can handle this by maybe setting up particular small military installations with a perimeter around them from which people of Japanese ancestry might be excluded. But there's no need, the Justice Department maintained, and it might even be illegal to take broad race-based action against the whole group. Attorney General Biddle pleaded privately with Roosevelt, but Roosevelt's trusted Secretary of War convinced him to go in another direction. You're listening to Order 9066, a three-part documentary series from APM Reports and the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. This is part one, The Roundup. We'll take a short break, and when we return, the mass removal of Japanese Americans from the West Coast. More in a moment. This is APM, American Public Media. From the White House today came the most drastic action yet taken against possible fifth column activity, sabotage and spying on the Pacific coast. On February 19, 1942, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066. The effect of an executive order issued by the president is to allow the Secretary of War to remove not only Japanese aliens, but Japanese who are American citizens from strategic areas on the West Coast. For all its impact, historian Eric Muller says the language of Executive Order 9066 was remarkably bland. You don't find the word Japanese anywhere in 9066. You don't find references to long-term detention. You know, if an alien were to pick it up and read it, they wouldn't imagine that there was anything racial about the executive order at all. It just, it just speaks of people and the power of the military to remove people from zones. But in reality, Order 9066 resulted in the incarceration of roughly 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry. Eric Muller notes that while the nation was also at war with Germany and Italy, immigrants from those countries were generally spared the same fate under Order 9066. It was a very dry, legalistic-sounding document. It spoke very neutrally and then it was applied in a wholly racial fashion. When President Roosevelt signed Order 9066, he had credible intelligence showing that Japanese Americans posed no major threat to the West Coast, and that clearing them from the region was unnecessary. On the other hand, it was easier to get rid of the Japanese Americans for the period of the war, to move them away, rather than risk riots on the West Coast, or a break in production for the Pacific Theater. Greg Robinson. And the rights of 120,000 people that he, again, in some subtle but authentic way, he didn't really think of Americans anyway, were not important compared to the needs of the war effort. The original intent of Order 9066 was to force people of Japanese ancestry to move inland to places like Montana, Wyoming, Utah, and Idaho, but Al Zhang says the governors of those states protested vehemently. They said, We don't want them coming into our areas. If you're going to remove them from the West Coast, we want them placed in camps. Camps that were guarded by armed soldiers 
and surrounded by barbed wire. In March of 1942, public notices started to appear in Japanese-American neighborhoods along the West Coast. Instructions to all persons of Japanese ancestry. They were nailed to telephone poles and tacked up at the post office. All Japanese persons, both alien and non-alien, will be evacuated from the designated area by 12 o'clock noon, Tuesday, April 7, 1942. The dates varied from one community to the next, but the instructions were the same. Each Japanese-American family had to report to a certain location, like a hardware store or church, to register for removal and pick up tags with numbers on them. They were to attach those tags to themselves and their belongings on departure day. Japanese Americans, for the most part, had one week's notice. They had no idea where they were going to be removed to. They didn't know the location. All they knew was that they could only bring what they could carry. Matsue Watanabe was 14 years old when the exclusion orders were posted in her community. We only took what we had to take, because we only had one suitcase that we can take. She lived on Bainbridge Island, near Seattle, where her family grew strawberries. And, of course, in that suitcase, you're trying to put maybe a sheet or so that you can have for sleeping, and uh, the rest is your clothes and your shoes. So you're not taking any toys or anything like that. And I don't recall if I put any books in there. One suitcase for the rest of your life that we thought isn't a lot. It was hard to decide, do we take summer clothes, winter clothes, sneakers, boots, or what? This is Aiko Herzig Yoshinaga. I found what few things I selected were totally inadequate for the kind of weather that we finally did encounter. I remember one of my girlfriends now, she could see the pictures of my sister and uh, us walking down the dock, and she could see that they're dressed up and they have hats on and everything. And she says, why did you dress up to go to camp? And I said, well, we had no place else to put it except on our body because you had one suitcase to carry. So the good clothes you wore. Many families had just days to prepare for removal and they were frantic. They had to figure out what to take with them, and how to store or get rid of everything else they owned. With so many men locked in FBI detention centers, it often fell to the wives and the eldest sons to manage. Well, I think preparing to leave was probably the hardest thing for, for my mother. What to take, what to destroy, what to sell. My f mother had to dispose of the farm. We had to get rid of our business. We had to take care of our, all of our financial affairs. The uh, neighbors knew that the shorter time we had to leave, the more willing we would be to lower our prices. My first concern for my dad was to, you know, what are we going to do with the grocery store with all the inventory? You know, we had all the canned goods and stuff like that. So there were vultures all around, hanging around for days, waiting for the day that we would move, and that we would literally have to give things away. The previous year, my dad had spent about $9,000 to revamp the store. Basically, those type of people would converge and wheel and deal and buy all sorts of things with the rate of maybe 10 cents on a dollar and uh, I guess he made a lot of money. He wanted to buy the place lock, stock, and barrel with the equipment and uh, all the inventory for 400 bucks. <laughs> 400 bucks, that's when my dad sold the grocery store for 400 bucks. I have heard many stories of mothers who were so furious at the insulting prices that were offered by buyers they rather than sell them they would break the dishes or the big platters that they cherished so much some families found places to store things in a friend's barn in the back room of an apartment or a buddhist temple but they had no idea whether their belongings would still be there if and when they returned home 
Jane Oka was nine years old when her family was forced to leave their farming community in Salinas, California. What she recalls are not the things her family lost, but the animals. My dad killed all the chickens that we had. We had them for eggs, and probably when they got old, we did eat chicken. But we had a time frame. I mean, we, we were going to be incarcerated. So there was a period where we had chicken almost every night. And I, I knew my dad didn't, he felt horrible killing repeatedly. The first Japanese Americans to be forcibly removed were on Bainbridge Island, where Matsue Watanabe lived. We had to wait for the big army trucks to come to pick us up. The army drove Matsue along with her five siblings and mother, to a dock. There they waited to be loaded onto ferries that would bring them to Seattle. Matsue felt humiliated. Because we're standing there with all the military around us as if we had really done something bad, and so they were gonna take us away. I didn't wanna look at anybody I knew there because I felt uh, ashamed to be having to go away. It was a very scary experience for us, not knowing if and when we would be back and where we were going. We didn't know where we were going. On the day her family left home, Jane Oka piled into the back of a pickup truck with her brothers and sisters. Our dog saw us leaving and followed us until he got worn out and he couldn't keep up. And we were told two days later he disappeared. As Jane was being forced from her home in Salinas, 17-year-old Aiko Yoshinaga faced a crisis in Los Angeles. She was in love with a boy who lived on the other side of town, and they worried about where they each would be sent. Los Angeles was a big area. It was divided into different sections. And different sections would be sent to different camps. We found out that the persons living in the area which, where he lived would be going to a particular assembly center, whereas my family would be going somewhere else. And so foolishly and desperately in love, we eloped so I could go with his family. A few days later, Aiko boarded a train with her new husband and his family. They were taken to a camp still under construction in a desolate area east of the Sierra Nevada mountains. It was called Manzanar. The uh, day we arrived was hot, dusty. When we got off the bus, we lined up, were told which barrack we should go to, then told to go to a certain area where we were issued a sack long sack which served as the mattress cover, told to fill it with hay, which served as our mattress for the period that we were in the camps. It was devastating. <laughs> By June of 1942, the United States Army had forcibly removed more than 110,000 people of Japanese ancestry from their homes along the West Coast. They sent most of them, first, to so-called assembly centers. These were primitive, temporary holding camps set up on fairgrounds and racetracks. Later, the Japanese-American prisoners would be dispersed across 10 different incarceration camps in Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Eastern California, and Arkansas. Their numbers would grow to 120,000. Pat Suzuki was one of those prisoners, and she picks up our story. I grew up on a farm in California. When I was 12 years old, my family was incarcerated at the Merced Assembly Center. Bob Fujigami was also there, the same age as me. Merced was like a prison camp, surrounded by barbed wire. Guard towers. What Bob remembers is trying to figure out how to crawl under that barbed wire to pick some juicy-looking grapes growing on the other side. You know, I thought, gosh, it wouldn't take much to cross that little road you know, beyond the fence to get the grapes. I mean, you could see them, you could smell them. Like a junior sleuth, Bob began tracking the pattern of the searchlights. 
He hoped to calculate just the right moment to make his escape, but one thing stopped him. We were told, you go beyond that fence, you're going to get shot. That was not an empty threat. During the time that they were incarcerated, seven Japanese Americans were shot and killed for stepping outside of camp. Despite the danger, some people refused to be cowed by the guards. Yukiko Miyake was 32 years old when she was imprisoned at the Puyallup Fairground with her daughter Kako. Yukiko's husband had been picked up by the FBI, so she and Kako were housed in a woman's barrack. There was one lady there with a nice voice, and she used to sing to us. And the guard would come and say, shut up, be quiet, you know. The minute he left, she started singing again. <laughs> Yukiko resented the guards, and she wasn't afraid to taunt them. I said, what are you doing up there, you know? We didn't do anything bad. I said, with a bayonet sticking in your gun? I said, what are you going to do, kill us? Most of the assembly centers were located near the towns and cities where Japanese Americans had lived before President Roosevelt signed Order 9066. That meant neighbors and friends could come visit. Some brought gifts of food like apple pie with ice cream or fried chicken. For Chia Tomohiro, these visits were a mixed blessing. She was a high school senior when her family was sent to the assembly center in Portland, Oregon. When her friends from the city came to see her, they weren't allowed inside the camp. So they would stand outside the arbor fence, and I would be inside, and I'd be talking to them. And, you know, it was so humiliating. The barbed wire barrier reminded Chia that she was a prisoner, even though she hadn't done anything wrong. The assembly centers were prison-like in other ways, too. For instance, there was just no privacy. Each family had to live together in one room, whether it was a horse stall or a unit in the makeshift barracks. Small families had to bunk up with others. This was the case for Aiko Herzig Yoshinaga. She was 17 when she arrived at Manzanar. She had just eloped with her boyfriend, Jake. It was some honeymoon. We separated our living quarters by putting up blankets to give us a little privacy. Aiko and Jake shared their room with Jake's older brother and sister, along with their new spouses and a baby girl. The walls between each apartment did not go all the way to the ceiling. So if somebody sneezed in apartment one, you could hear it in apartment five. Conversations were never private because you could hear everything. And, of course, for newlyweds, privacy is important. I had never had any sexual experience before I went to camp. And so making love on a straw mattress was noisy. I mean, every time you moved a toe, crackle, 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 you know. I don't know how I lived through it. Or perhaps we just respected each other's need for togetherness and sexual activity that we ignored it. The barracks had no running water or bathrooms. Instead, the camps had primitive latrines and washrooms. When we first went into the camps, uh, the toilets were not separated. No one had any privacy to answer nature's call. And the women particularly, they just dreaded going to the bathroom. This is Min Tonai, who was incarcerated at the Santa Anita racetrack. And they would do all kinds of things to try to not, you know, go when other people are there. To the point where there was one enterprising girl who somehow found a large cardboard box. So she would carry that and put it around her when she went to go to the bathroom. The showers were communal, too. Like the toilets, there were no partitions between the shower heads that stuck out from the wall. And Japanese women are known to be pretty modest about things like that, and it was a, a very hard adjustment for many to make. We would not shower in front of other people. Well, I wasn't going to. I'd never gotten naked in front of a stranger. Akiko Okuno was a teenager when her family was sent to the Salinas Assembly Center in California. For Akiko and her sisters, figuring out how to shower in private was a problem. So my mother solved it by 
waking us like about three o'clock or so in the morning, and then we'd all go quietly to the shower room when nobody else was around and take our showers. Others crept to the latrines late at night in hopes of being alone. They often found neighbors there who had the same idea. Adding to the embarrassment, the searchlights often followed them as they walked. The crude conditions at the assembly centers made life hard for everyone. This was especially true in the first weeks of incarceration when the camps weren't really finished. The army was still building mess halls. People stood in endless lines to get fed. At the Pomona Assembly Center just east of Los Angeles, elderly people would pass out waiting for food in the hot sun. And eating itself could be an ordeal. Many Japanese-Americans were accustomed to freshly caught fish, and they ate fruits and vegetables they grew themselves or bought from a fresh market. In camp, a lot of what they ate came from a can. Some of the foods they fed us. I would call it slop. You know, what we got was slop. And our first meal there, beets, cold canned beets with raw onions in them. I've never heard of cow tongues, but they fed us cow tongues. The food, as I remember, it was Vienna sausages and mutton stew. Our first lunch was those little canned wieners. And I don't remember whether there was sauerkraut with it or not, but I remember I couldn't eat it. Me being raised through the Depression, I learned to eat anything. If it tastes bad, just don't breathe and just chew it and swallow. And that's how basically they got through without starving. People didn't starve in the detention camps, but historian Greg Robinson says the government was cheap when it came to feeding them. There were rumors in the surrounding white communities that the Japanese Americans were being pampered. The government deliberately kept the price of food per person below 50 cents a day. In fact, they mostly kept it to something like 35 cents a day which meant that they couldn't feed people very well. And then the camps were covered by the same rationing that all civilians had to undergo during World War II. So there was hardly any meat, and certainly the meat they had was of terrible quality. Sometimes that meat made people sick. Louise Cascino remembers an especially rough night at the Puyallup Assembly Center. The culprit spoiled Vienna sausages. So people got diarrhea. Everybody was rushing to the bathroom, and you know, sometimes you had to go two, three blocks to get to the bathroom. And I remember the uh, guards on top of the grandstand turned the floodlights on and the guns down at us. Apparently, the guards thought the incarcerees were making a run for it. It wasn't a stampede. No way were we trying to rebel, you know. But we were the enemy, I guess. This was a, a cultural and emotional trauma for this community. Historian Eric Muller says that being treated as the enemy in makeshift prison camps was deeply stigmatizing for a people who prized the appearance of dignity. It would be for any community, but I think for, for certain cultural reasons, it might have been even more stigmatizing for the Japanese-American community. Japanese-Americans made exceptional efforts to overcome their circumstances. It started from those first days in the assembly centers. An incarcerated professor from UC Berkeley started an art school. High school seniors corralled younger kids into makeshift classrooms even when they had no books. College students ran a service to bring food to people who couldn't walk to the mess hall. Jean Akutsu, the cobbler's son we met in an earlier chapter, was just 16 years old when he volunteered to work on a maintenance crew. He was incarcerated at the Puyallup Assembly Center. He got assigned a particularly tough job. We used to clean out the septic tank every four to five weeks, take it out to the field and dump it, and then take it over to the river to rinse out the garbage can and haul it back, and that kind of was a re regular routine. Routine, maybe, but Jean took up smoking to mask the stench. Life in the assembly centers was a constant struggle for the older generations. Many feared that they would never recover from their financial losses. 
One-third of the imprisoned population lacked citizenship, making them especially vulnerable. They had no idea what would happen to them, and they felt betrayed and hopeless. For kids and teens, the picture wasn't always as bleak. Historian Greg Robinson says that many figured out ways to amuse themselves. Children are adaptable, and so they were able to have experiences that were fun and not realize what their parents were going through. Being incarcerated like that, for me, it was, it was, a, it was a big picnic. That's Frank Yamasaki. Frank was a senior in high school when his family was sent to Puyallup, which some people called Camp Harmony. After the racial isolation he experienced in school, Camp held some relief. Because I seen so many pretty girls, and I never seen so many Japanese in my life. Uh, they had all these activities that went on, even at Camp Harmony. They had all kinds of sports, uh, dancing, uh, several activities. I got on a team and uh, was able to play softball for the first time. And that was a lot of fun. Bacon Sakatani was 12 when he and his family were imprisoned at the Pomona Assembly Center in California. And then all the adults had a softball league. They were amazing. Well, dancing, of course, we would get the uh, tables that are in there, and we would put those aside, and we'd get some soap or, you know, and put it on the floor. And the thing to this day, I often wondered, where did they get the PA system you know, for the music? I don't know. Another thing that was really enjoyable was the weekly talent show. You know, they got all these musicians and singers and performers, and oh, it was very good. I mean, there were many talented people, you know. We would find ways of sneaking into other areas, and the area D was the most interesting because that used to be, that still is, the uh, fairground. So they would have these concession areas, like these spook houses and haunted houses, and, mm -hmm. and so we would, they'd be boarded up but we would find ways of going in there. Of course, you know, we're sitting in an open field on uh, dirt ground with guards around the place, having to stay in a room 20 feet by 20 feet, no screens on the window, sleeping on straw mattresses, but overlooking all those kind of things. There were some things that were enjoyable. I think that we have to be careful when we talk about the camps as being unrelievedly grim places. Historian Greg Robinson. There were hardships and there was suffering that went on, but I think that the more important thing to realize is that the tragedy of what happened is that people, because of their ancestry or their race, were taken away from their homes for no reason. That realization hit Frank Yamasaki when a white teacher from his high school surprised him with a visit at the assembly center. He says, is there some place we can sit and talk, you know? Frank knew just the place, the grandstand on the fairgrounds where he'd sometimes take a girl. So we went up there, and all of a sudden, I, I just feel that the atmosphere has changed. All of a sudden, I had a perspective view of the whole camp area, and I never dreamed the rows of barracks that was there. And it's a kind of a shocking view. And this guy, uh, the teacher said, uh, he's, he was telling about his experience uh, during the World War I. And uh, he's German, and his father was interned. And so he went through a similar experience. And he, he said, uh, this is a dirty or rotten shame that this kind of thing has happened, you know? And for the first time, I really felt the impact of what was going on. And uh, it, prior to then, I was a happy-go-lucky, uh, carefree teenagers, and yeah, it made uh, quite an impression on me. By the end of summer 1942, Japanese Americans held in the assembly centers would start their next big move, this time to permanent incarceration camps built much further inland. Many people expected that life would be better once they were out of the temporary camps, but many would be disappointed. The permanent camps, built in isolated deserts or swamps, presented a whole new set of challenges. 
Some would be broken by the experience, and some would invent new and ingenious ways to survive. One of the things that my mom wanted to do was to make comforters. And so my dad planted cotton between the barracks. He also made a hand roller to take the seeds out. And so that's what we did as kids. We rolled this thing and took all the seeds out. The Japanese-American farmers and scientists held in the camps used their deep knowledge of agriculture to grow fresh food in harsh climates. We had 60 acres of corn for canning. It was just beautiful, not a single worm. As World War II continued, young men in the camps began to get drafted. This created rifts among prisoners. Some chose to go to war, and some chose to resist. I wanted to fight for the United States, the same as my classmates. Whether I lived or not didn't make any difference. Everybody was going to fight the war, and I wanted to be a part of it. The loyalty of Japanese Americans held in camps would be tested in other ways, too. This created even more conflict. That's in the next hour of our series. Order 9066 is produced by Stephen Smith and me, Kate Ellis. Our narrators are Saab Shimono and Pat Suzuki. The editors are Chris Julin and Mary Beth Kirshner. The theme music is by Genji Saraisi. The production team includes Alex Baumhart, Hannah Murayama, Emerald O'Brien, Andy Cruz, Corey Shreppel, Veronica Rodriguez, Michael Osborne, and Johnny Vince Evans. This series is a collaboration with the National Museum of American History. The team there includes Jennifer Jones, Mariko Sanafuji, and Valeska Hilbig. Special thanks to Densho, the Japanese American Legacy Project. Support for Order 9066 comes from the Terasaki Family Foundation, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Wallace Alexander Gerbodi Foundation, the Ishiyama Family Foundation, and Penelope Shala. You can hear the entire documentary series at our website, apmreports.org. While you're there, you can see photos from the incarceration and find links to additional resources. That includes the Smithsonian's online exhibition, Writing a Wrong. You can also learn about our terminology, like why we use the word incarceration instead of internment. Thanks for listening. This is APM. American Public Media.